If you have a Bible with you this morning, open it with me to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. In just a moment, we'll hear God's word from this chapter. While you're finding your place there in Mark 13, just one more reminder, beginning this week, the summer breakouts will begin. Uh, our men will meet on Mondays, that's tomorrow at 6.30. We'll enjoy uh, fellowship around the table as we enjoy a meal together. And then about 7 o'clock, maybe just a little bit after, we'll transition to our time of worshiping together and spending some time in the Word. And men, if you're interested in joining us for dinner tomorrow, on the pew back in front of you, there is a blue dinner reservation card. We would ask that you pull that out. Uh, put how many will be with you and then drop that in the collection boxes before you leave today and that'll help us to make preparations for that occasion tomorrow. Fantastic menu, fried chicken, baked beans, macaroni and cheese and banana pudding and all God's people said amen. I probably shouldn't have said that since we're so close to lunchtime. Uh, but it's good food, but more than that, it's good fellowship as we gather around the Word. So I hope that you'll make plans to be here with us for that. And then ladies, you'll meet on Wednesday. And again, we made it, I believe, incredibly simple for you. Ladies, if you plan to be there Wednesday at 6.30 for dinner, look on the pew back in front of you, and you will find a pink dinner reservation card. Pull that out. Uh, put down how many will be attending with you. Drop that in the collection boxes. They will make plans uh, for you to be there to enjoy dinner with them and then their speaker afterwards. Uh, I believe they've got a taco bar uh, on the menu for you to enjoy on Wednesday night. So keep that in mind. Make plans. Be at those as you can. And remember, all of our other Wednesday services, regular uh, midweek ministries, they have been suspended uh, for July. But we hope you'll be there for the summer breakouts. All right, let's get into the Word this morning. Mark 13. Mark 13. I want to read for us the entirety of this chapter. So some of you are about to catch up on your Bible reading. All right. I realize that 37 verses is a lot for us to read through at one time, but I think it's important that we do so, so that we can understand uh, the continuity of the teaching that Jesus gives here in Mark 13. This chapter is often referred to as the Olivet Discourse. This is the teaching that Jesus provides to his disciples as they are there on the Mount of Olives looking back uh, at the temple across the Kidron Valley. And so let's hear God's word this morning as we begin looking into Mark chapter 13. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that would not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. 
for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Let's pray again. Father, we thank you for this, your holy word. And Lord, we do pray for the help of your spirit as we proclaim it today. 
Father, your word is life. It is bread to our souls. So Lord, we pray today that you would feed us and sustain us by it. Father, I pray that as your word goes out, you would use it today to accomplish your good and eternal purposes. Father, by your word today, may our faith in Christ be firm. By your word today, may we be a people who stay awake. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that would believe. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, today in our study of the Gospel of Mark, we come to what is one of the most difficult and debated chapters in Scripture. As I've said already, this chapter is often referred to as the Olivet Discourse, the final teaching that Jesus will give his disciples in the Gospel of Mark. This is the longest teaching section of Jesus in the Gospel. And it's very encouraging as you sit down to study and prepare to preach such a passage when you open several resources uh, to look into to help shed light on what's taking place here that you read these words. Mark 13 is a very difficult chapter. Mark 13 is a difficult text to interpret with faithful Bible-believing teachers differing on the details. This, one commentator said, is a very complicated matter, but it is also a very important one. Therefore, it is important to wrestle with this passage in an effort to come to an understanding of it. And then perhaps my favorite comment, one commentator simply wrote, what is he talking about? I think I can relate. Uh, despite the difficulty of all that's presented to us in this passage, we do know the context of what is taking place. Uh, having left the temple complex for the final time in his ministry, uh, as they leave, one of the disciples, an unnamed disciple in verse 1 of the chapter, remarks about the astonishing beauty of the temple. Now, that's not a necessarily surprising comment, especially if this would have been perhaps the first time that this particular disciple had been there. The temple complex was a sight to behold. It was massive in its structure. Uh, some historians believe that the temple complex alone comprised nearly one quarter of the entire space in the city of Jerusalem. The sanctuary itself stood 150 feet high, as did the temple wall. The columns constructed to hold up the portico were so massive that three large men could barely encompass them by touching fingertip to fingertip. This, of course, is what's known as Herod's temple. The temple that Solomon built in the Old Testament was destroyed during the Babylonian captivity and exile. There was a later reconstruction project that uh, reconstructed the temple, but it failed to reach the, uh, the previous glory. But somewhere about 19 B.C., 20 B.C., Herod the Great came along, and as he was prone to do, he set out to uh, enlarge the temple, uh, to make it uh, his, his own, if you will, to put his touch to it, and, and all the construction that took place. In fact, even in this day, even during the ministry of Jesus, construction was still ongoing and would continue for a few more decades. But what a sight. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that some of the stones that made up the temple were 60 
feet long, 11 feet high, 8 feet deep, with some stones weighing more than 1 million pounds. So it shouldn't be surprising that one of the disciples says, man, have you seen these stones? Get a load of this building. It's unbelievable. Other historians in antiquity said of Herod's temple that it looked like a mountain of marble that had been decorated with gold. The temple complex was architecturally stunning and must have looked so strong that it could stand for a thousand years still to come. So it's not surprising that this unnamed disciple made this comment as they were leaving the temple. What a place. What a sight to see. But what is surprising is that on the heels of that statement, in verse 2, Jesus then pronounces the destruction of that very temple. Jesus says to them, do you see these great buildings? You see all that is here? You see this complex? There will not be left one stone as magnificent and as large as they are standing upon another. It's all coming down. All going to the ground. It's hard for us to fathom such an astonishing announcement. It's hard for us today to imagine the profound impact hearing those words would have had upon the disciples. You see, to them, as well as to Jewish life and culture, the temple was absolutely everything. It was, in, in a sense, their identity. It was what defined them. It was the very center of all that they were. So to think of the temple's end, to think of the temple being out of an existence, uh, was an astonishing thought. In some ways, for them, it was synonymous as the world itself coming to an end. To think of a, a temple like this being done away with for those in that day was to think that the world itself was going to cease as well. Upon hearing the words of Jesus, the disciples were thinking about the final consummation of history. In their minds, there was not a long interval between the destruction of the temple and the end of the age. For them to hear that the temple would be torn down was to think the end is in fact at hand. The end of all is near. And it seems that in part, Jesus takes the opportunity in his teaching in chapter 13 to discuss both of these things with the disciples. To teach them two truths. A truth regarding the end of the temple, what he has just spoken of in verse 2, but also to weave into that or to add on to that perhaps some teaching and truth about the end of all, the end of time, the consummation of history. And that's where we come to the troubling and difficult part of this chapter. As we read chapter 12, as we work our way through it uh, this morning and Lord willing uh, next Sunday and perhaps even one more after that, We've got to ask ourselves, in this chapter, what pertains to the immediate context, the end of the temple that Jesus is speaking about, the destruction of the temple that is absolutely breathtaking, and what does Jesus say about the end of time? What in chapter 13 pertains to that? 
Now, in many ways, as we go through the chapter, there is an overlap. Uh, there's, there's shared attributes, if you will, of the teaching. According to one commentator, the destruction of the temple is a lens through which we can view the distant destruction of the present evil age. And like most prophecy, and if you're a prophecy lover, this is the chapter you've been waiting on. We finally arrived. But like most prophecy that we find in Scripture, there is both a near and a far aspect to it. Uh, there's a nearness, there's an immediate uh, application of the prophecy as well a greater fulfillment that is still to come. And I think that's here in the text before us. I think we see the near. I think we can look to the far. I think there's an overlap between the destruction of the temple and the end of all things. But I think we need to exercise caution in how we determine which words of Jesus apply to which issue. We need to be careful in how we interpret this passage. And, and I would just say at the beginning, if we read chapter 13 carefully, one of the things that we need to come away with very clearly is that Jesus is calling us to exercise caution. Be careful. Be aware. Be on guard. Jesus is stressing that we, we need to be wise in these things that he is teaching us. We need to watch with discernment. We need to exercise caution. So we need to think well about what Jesus is teaching. Now, after hearing the statement that Jesus makes in verse 2 as they are leaving the temple mount, the temple complex, when we come to verse 3, Jesus and his disciples are now on the Mount of Olives. They're on the eastern side of the city. They have crossed over the Kidron Valley. The Mount of Olives actually sits a little bit higher than the mount on which Jerusalem has been constructed. And so, in essence, they are looking over at the temple complex. They're looking down upon it, and they can see it in all of its glory, in all of its grandeur, in all of its magnificence. And the minds of the disciples are racing. Jesus has said, this thing's coming down. And if that thing comes down, man, that's the end of it all. And they've got some questions. And so four of them, Peter and James, John and Andrew, they asked Jesus privately, verse three. In verse four, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Now, there's something we need to note in their question. They distinctly refer to these things. When will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? They want to know about these things. So the immediate context of the entirety of chapter 13 is Jesus dealing with the destruction of the temple. That's the question in the mind of the apostles. When is this going to happen? What will lead us to understand when it's taking place? We need to know about these things things. Jesus will also use that language. As he is teaching, he will reference what he has taught by taking them back to these things. These things will not take place or these things will take place. 
Jesus is also using the language of these things. And I think in doing so, it helps us understand a little bit, provides some clarity that Jesus is speaking again about the immediate context of what's happening here in the chapter, his prophecy concerning the destruction of the temple. So the disciples want to know two things about the matter. Number one, they ask the question, when? When? When will this happen? When is this going to take place? In essence, in their mind, they're asking, when is this climactic, we might even say apocalyptic occasion of the destruction of the temple going to occur? When is the end coming? It's perhaps they might phrase it differently. They ask the question about when, and we can certainly understand their desire to know that. Such a big moment in their lives and in their culture, they would want to know when. But then they add to that in verse 4. They ask not only when, but they also ask what. When will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So they want to know when, and they want to know what they need to be looking for to know when that's going to happen. What are the indicators that we're getting close to this? They, they really wanted to make sure that they were prepared, that they were ready. They didn't want to be caught off guard when such a, an event as this was going to unfold. So they wanted to know, what do we need to be looking for when the end finally arrives? What's going to lead us to that point? Well, I think these are some incredibly important questions. When? What? In fact, these are two questions that we still ask as believers today, especially in regard to the end of time. When's Jesus coming back and what's it going to look like before he does? We, we hear that all the time, don't we? And that's why we're quick in chapter 13 to want to strive to make that application. Jesus has given us some when and Jesus has given us some what. And we'll get to that. Because Jesus doesn't avoid their questions. In fact, he goes on to answer them in the chapter, but how we understand his answers to what end they apply is where the difficulty arises. When Jesus speaks about what end and what to look for, is he speaking of the end of the temple or the end of the age, the end of all things? You, you see where it could kind of get a little bit difficult there. Because if we make some misapplication, we can find ourselves in some very bad places. And certainly we've seen this in the history of the church, haven't we? We've heard of those who have sought to pick a date, to name a time. 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back in 1988. Well, it's 2023. I think they got that one a little bit wrong. And there have been others even more recent. Naming dates and picking times and looking at signs and current events as precursors and pointers perhaps to when Jesus is coming again. Well, unfortunately this morning, I'm going to leave you waiting another week before we look at those issues. This is perhaps my tease to invite you to come back next Sunday. But I leave those for next week because i think there's another question that we need to ask we can't just jump to the when and the what there's another question that the text puts before us and 
The disciples seem to miss it, but Mark gives us his gospel in such a way that I don't think we can, or at least we shouldn't. And I do think it's the more important question. More important than when will this happen and what do we need to be looking for is the question of why. Why? Why is the temple being destroyed? Why is Jesus announcing the destruction of what seems to be at the very center of the Jewish religion? Why is Jesus announcing uh, the raising? I used that word last Sunday, and in the English language, it really is amazing. You can have one word, raise, that speaks of raising your arm, but you have another word, raise, with a Z in it, and it speaks of destroying, of laying things to waste, and that's the word I'm using now, raised with a Z. And so Jesus is speaking of the temple being raised, of wiping it out. Why? This why question is of great importance. And this is really where Mark is taking us and the purpose of Mark chapter 13. Mark 13 serves as an important bridge. It gives us textual connections to the final events that play out in the life and ministry of Jesus, namely his crucifixion and resurrection. Mark 13 is that bridge that crosses us over to that place where the climactic events of the gospel transpire. And it gives us that bridge through the destruction of the temple. And it helps us to understand the why. The why. So this morning, I want to zero in on the why. Why is the temple being destroyed? Why has Jesus announced this prophetic uh, event that will come, that not one stone upon another will be left standing? Let me give you three reasons. First, it's an act of God's judgment. The destruction of the temple is an act of God's judgment. Chapter 13, the teaching that Jesus gives here to the disciples as they make their inquiries concerning uh, the when and the what, Jesus teaches them those things in the context of explaining the why. This is going to happen because God is judging his people once again. When you go back to the Old Testament, you find as God established the temple in the nation of Israel that one of the judgments that he handed down against them as they disobeyed his commands, his priests weren't faithful, as they disregarded his laws, is that he sent them into exile. And in doing that, through the act of the Babylonians, the temple itself was destroyed. So the destruction of the temple is always equated in Scripture with the judgment of God being meted out. And that judgment is handed down because of the failure of God's people to keep his laws, to walk in his ways. And chapter 13 is filled with this language by Jesus. When you look in verse 24 and you hear the language of the days of tribulation, the sun being darkened, the moon not giving its light, stars falling from heaven, powers in the heavens will be shaken. This is Old Testament language that Jesus is employing that his disciples would understand and easily relate to. And in the context of the Old Testament, it's given, it's given in an act of judgment. This is going to be a day of great calamity of cosmic upheaval 
the God of heaven is judging you upon earth because you have disobeyed his commands. You have not kept his ways. You have broken covenant with him. So Jesus uses that language in his explanation. He's giving us the why. Why is the temple going to be destroyed? It's an act of God's judgment. And is this not the case that Jesus has made when he came to Jerusalem in the time that he spent in the temple? I mean, on Monday of Holy Week, he went into the outer courts and he overthrew everything. Why? Because they weren't doing it right. They weren't honoring God. On the Tuesday of Holy Week, as he continued to teach and he was approached with question after question after question, Jesus rebuked them in the answers that he gave for their failure as the religious leaders to lead the people well, to honor God and what they were doing there. And then, of course, last Sunday we saw that as Jesus sat down outside the treasury watching the collection boxes, he observed this poor widow give all that she had. And it's a text not so much about what we should give or how we should give, but it's a text where Jesus is laying his case before us. This is what I'm talking about. They're not taking care of the vulnerable, of the less fortunate. This lady is not being provided for in the way that God commanded her to be. Because of that, once again, God's judgment is coming upon his people and the temple, the temple will be destroyed. So why? It's an act of God's judgment. But secondly, the destruction of the temple points us to a greater fulfillment. A greater fulfillment that takes place in Christ himself. The disciples couldn't imagine their life without the temple. They couldn't imagine the city without the temple. They couldn't imagine their culture without the temple. I mean, it was, it was literally mind-blowing to them. But yet Jesus has said, this is what's going to take place. Well, why would Jesus say such a thing? Because in his words, found in Matthew chapter 12, verse 6, Jesus said, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And when Jesus spoke of those words, he was speaking of himself. Jesus was professing, I am greater than this temple. You think this temple's a great thing? You think this temple's a great building? I'm greater than what you're looking at. Jesus Christ is presented to us as a greater fulfillment of all that the temple was to be. In fact, the Hebrew writer tells us in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, that the temple and all of its associated practices— the priesthood, the sacrifices, all the ceremonial aspects, that all of these things, the Hebrew writer said, they were but shadows. But Christ is the reality. The shadow is not the, the real object. The shadow is not the real thing. But Christ, now that he has come as the Son of God in flesh, he is the fulfillment of all that the temple was the picture of and the representation of. So why is the temple being destroyed? Well, because God is judging his people again for their failure, but also because Christ has come as a greater fulfillment of the temple. Let me just give you three ways that we see Jesus as the greater temple. First of all, he gives us a greater picture of God's glory. He gives us a greater picture of God's glory. Now, when we hear about the construction of Herod's temple, and all of its magnificence, a mountain of marble decorated with gold. 
I mean, they tell us that when the sun would shine upon it on a clear day, it would almost blind you to gaze at it. And we hear of all the luxury that was included, how elaborate its construction was. I mean, we can be taken aback by that. And we think, well, maybe, maybe this guy was wrong for doing that, and perhaps he did it out of wrong motives, certainly, but even when you go back to the Old Testament, and you read of the details concerning the construction of the temple which Solomon built, it too was just as breathtaking. It too had its many intricacies, luxuries. It too was incredibly adorned. To see the temple was to behold a beautiful picture. And that temple was given as a representation of the dwelling place of God with man. And so we can understand why it would be decorated in such an elaborate fashion. This is where the covenant God, this is where Yahweh convenes with his people. Surely this is a house that he is worthy of. It just seems to fit. But now we have Jesus upon the scene. And Jesus says, I'm greater than the temple. And he's greater because in his person and in his presence and through the incarnation, he gives to us a greater picture of what God's glory truly is. The temple and its building being made by human hands could never convey properly all that God was. But here's God in the flesh. So as John says in his beginning of the gospel of John, we beheld him as the glory of the Father. We beheld him who came full of grace and truth. The Hebrew writer said the same thing. He is the exact imprint of the nature of the glory of God. Jesus would say, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus is greater than the temple, so the temple is needed no more. He gives us a greater picture of God's glory. And Jesus says, it's upon me now. We saw this early in our study of Mark's gospel, right? Where Jesus said, I am the cornerstone. You've rejected that cornerstone and that stone is going to crush some, but upon others, a great building will be built. Jesus says, this building's being torn down, but on me, a greater house will be constructed. The church, believers, and through that, a greater glory will be given to God. Jesus is greater than the temple because he gives us a greater picture of God's glory. He's greater than the temple. Because Jesus serves as a greater high priest. It was the priest who would operate there in the temple, giving and receiving the sacrifices, carrying out the commands as God had instructed. But now Jesus has come, and the Hebrew writer tells us he is a greater high priest. He is a better high priest. He comes from a better lineage, the Hebrew writer tells us. He's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. A priest who has no beginning, a priest who has no ending. Jesus, as a greater high priest, serves in a better location. He serves in a temple not made by human hands, but a temple in heaven. He is passed into a heavenly throne room. And ultimately, Jesus is the greater fulfillment of the temple because he gives his life as a better sacrifice. That was the main function of the temple. It's where sacrifices would be brought in accordance to God's law, God's command for sins that have been committed acts of worship, but Jesus now as the fulfillment of all that the temple represented will give himself as a supreme sacrifice. The Hebrew writer says it again all throughout the book of Hebrews. 
the blood of bulls and goats and bullocks and turtle doves and pigeons. It could never sufficiently deal with the sins of mankind. But John would say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His sacrifice is sufficient. For he offered himself up but one time for the sins of those who would believe in him. Jesus is a greater priest. And then thirdly, as we think about Christ being a greater fulfillment, not only in his picture, not only in his priesthood, but he's the greater path. He's the greater path. It's really interesting that when you study the temple in the Old Testament, the tabernacle as well, is that there was an order in which things had to transpire. You had to go here, then you had to go there, and then these people could have access here, and then it kind of narrowed down, and eventually when you got to the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant and the glory of God would dwell and meet with His people, it was only the high priest, only on the Day of Atonement, one time a year. Only he could go through the inner veil. Only he could pass to that point. In a way, the temple reminded us that access to God was incredibly limited. But now Jesus Christ has come, and he is presented to us as one who is greater than the temple. And he is that because he now gives access to all. I told you earlier that chapter 13 really serves as a bridge to the end of Mark's gospel. If you were listening carefully as we read through the chapter, how many times do you think you heard Jesus tell his disciples, be careful, be, be watchful, stay on guard, be awake? And let me ask you, did you not also hear Jesus make some mentioning about coming and an unexpected coming and roosters crowing? I mean, Jesus said that as well here in Mark chapter 13. What do you think we're going to read when we get to Mark chapter 14 and 15 as the final days of Jesus begin to unfold, the final hours of his life unfold before the crucifixion? Jesus is going to be praying with his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's going to say to them, could you not watch with me? He's going to look at them and say, could you not stay awake with me? And he's going to go and he's going to pray some more. And he's going to come back and he says, could you not watch? Could you not be on guard? And does he not tell Peter, hey, you're going to deny me before the rooster crows? Isn't it interesting that a lot of what Jesus is teaching here in Mark chapter 13 reappears as we get to chapters 14 and 15. There's a bridge here. And what Mark is showing us is that what Jesus is teaching about the destruction of the temple has a direct connection to the crucifixion that he will endure, that he will make a sacrifice greater than any other sacrifice that's ever been given. And through that sacrifice then, all who would believe in him, all who would trust in him will have salvation. Wasn't this one of the things that Jesus condemned the religious elite in his day of, in, in his time in the temple? He, he came to the court of the Gentiles where there was access available for all in some regards, but it was, it was turned into a flea market. They had a bazaar going on. Blue light specials and falling prices everywhere. And Jesus had enough, and he, he threw everything out, turned everything over, and he said to them, do you not know that my Father's house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? And they hadn't done it. But Jesus is the greater temple. 
And as the greater temple, he will provide a sacrifice that is sufficient for all people, Jew and Gentile alike. Paul would say it this way in Romans 1, 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, Jew and Gentile. Jesus is a greater temple because he gives access to all before God. And then third, why? Why the destruction of the temple? Well, it's God's judgment. There's a greater fulfillment now in the person and work of Jesus. Third, the destruction of the temple brings about the advancement of God's plan. The destruction of the temple brings about the advancement of God's plan. We've seen that a little bit as we talked about the connection to the coming crucifixion and ultimately the resurrection of Jesus. But God's desire has always been to dwell with his people. When we think of temple in scripture, our minds go perhaps to what we're talking about here in Mark 13, the temple that Jesus is speaking of that will be destroyed, this prophecy concerning the the leveling of the temple stones. But this is just one small thread of temple that's woven throughout Scripture. There's a rope of this temple motif, this temple idea that we trace all through Scripture, especially when we understand what the temple is all about. It's not about outside adornment. It's about the presence of God dwelling with His people. And when we understand that and we begin to look through that lens at the the overarching message of Scripture, we, we begin to see something really amazing. We realize that Scripture begins in Genesis with the first temple, a place that we call the Garden of Eden, because it was there where God placed Adam and Eve in the midst of a garden that he created. And what did he do? He dwelt with them. He walked with them in the cool of the day. He was their God, and they were his people. And you know what we find in the Garden of Eden? All these amazing trees and all these precious metals. We read about them in in the book of Genesis, don't we? Well, we know that ultimately that was forfeited on the sin of Adam and Eve, and they were exiled out of the garden. But God's plan has always been about how can I get them back to me, and how can I dwell with them? That's what he desires, to dwell with his people. But sin wrecked havoc on that. So in the plan of God, he began to put things into place and he gave them the tabernacle. It wasn't exactly the same, but it kind of gave a reminder that this is what I long to do. You remember the tabernacle? It was that mobile temple that God gave his people as they journeyed through the wilderness and the the books of uh, Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and even into Joshua. And do you remember how God gave the instruction for the construction of that temple? There were, again, specific details, precious metals and all of this flowery imagery. You ever wonder why God wanted emblems of trees and leaves and olive knobs and all this stuff on the design of the temple and the tabernacle materials? Because it sounds an awful lot like a garden, doesn't it? So he gave them the tabernacle. And then ultimately, as God gave them a place and they settled and God gave them a king, David said, I've got a desire that you would have a house, Lord. And David wanted to build that house, but God said, no, 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 it won't be you, it'll be your son. So Solomon built the temple, the temple that we're thinking of this morning. 
It was built by Solomon, and we read of that glorious prayer where he dedicates the temple and the glory of God comes down and it dwells there. Man, it's just an amazing scene. What an occurrence, what an occasion. Of course, we've read how that temple was destroyed, how it was reconstructed, and now how Herod has uh, done some renovation to it and made it this glorious thing. And in the minds of the apostles of Jesus and all Jesus, they thought this was it. This was the end all be all. But that was not God's intended design. Remember Jesus told the woman at the well in Samaria in John 4? They got caught up in this question about where do we worship? Well, the Samaritans say we worship on this mountain over here, Mount Gerizim, I believe it was. And the Jews say you worship over here where the temple is in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, woman, I'm telling you there is coming a day when location is not going to be an issue for you. The question will be not where, but how. And you must worship him in spirit and in truth. God's plan is that it would not be centralized in one location. And so that brings us to what we've said earlier. Christ comes upon the scene. He is the true temple, the true representation of God dwelling with us. In fact, that's what John said in John 1 verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt, you know what it is? Tabernacled. Isn't that really interesting? Jesus Christ came and we could say he templed with us. He tabernacled with us and he would proclaim, I am the greater temple, the greater picture of God's glory, the fulfillment of the sacrifice that is needed for all of your sins. This is who I am. I'm the way that you come to God. No man comes to the Father but by me. But then we move a little bit further. And what do we read in the New Testament? That Jesus Christ is now building up his temple, a spiritual temple. And you know what Peter says? We're all part of it. If we believe in Christ, we are living stones. And you know what? You now are the temple. Why? Because the spirit of Christ dwells within you. First Corinthians chapter six, Paul says, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Christ is building his church through those who have believed in him. Now you say, well, preacher, why are you taking us on this journey? Why are, we, why, why are we talking about all this stuff? That's really cool and interesting. I see how it can tie some things together because when we get to the end, it gets really glorious. In Revelation 21, John gives us a vision of what heaven will ultimately be. And you remember what he talks about? There's trees. And there's trees bearing fruit, and there's a tree of life, and there's a river flowing with the water of life, and it's this glorious garden scene. And you know what he says in Revelation 21, verse 3? He says, there will be the dwelling place of God, and it is with man. He shall be their God, and they shall be his people. This is where God is taking everything. This is the ultimate fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. It started in Eden, but sin uh, wasted that, if you will. Then we had the tabernacle, the temple. Christ is the ultimate fulfillment. And then all who trust and believe in him, they're brought into this new creation at the end of the age where we will dwell with God forever, where we will enjoy his glory for all eternity. That's what we look forward to. And so this question of why is the temple being destroyed? Why is the temple being brought down? Because the way to the new creation, the way back into the garden, it doesn't come through works that we perform. It comes through what Jesus Christ has accomplished. 
It comes through what he will do on the cross and shedding his blood and dying in our place and through his resurrection as he conquers death and sin and now holds the keys. So why? Why the destruction? Because it's simply the advancement of God's plan that through his son Jesus Christ we may then dwell with him forever. So I ask you this morning, Do you have faith in Christ? Do you see Christ as the way to enjoy God forever? Are you part of this new thing that Christ is building, this this church, this house not made with hands? Or are you a believer in him today as the ultimate sacrifice that has been given for your sins? Christ in announcing the destruction of the temple is simply reminding us that the work of man will not suffice. And that the ways of man they will not save. But it's only through trusting him. Believing in him. Now I know there's questions. Well what about when? And what do we need to be looking for? You've got to come back next Sunday. (laughs) But here's what I want you to know. It doesn't do you a bit of good to know anything about the when or the what if you don't know the why. Because I've got news for you. If you don't know the why, when the when and the what happens, you're going to be in a heap of trouble. But if you know why, and maybe better than that, if you know who, who Jesus is and why he has come, when that time comes, when the end arrives, it'll be a glorious occasion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, we pray that you would let your word work mightily in our hearts and our lives, that, Lord, we might glorify you. Father, I pray that we would not lean upon any work that we might perform, that we would not trust in any deed that we might do, but that our hope for the end of the ages is simply completely totally placed upon Jesus Christ the one who is the greater temple gives us a better picture provides a better sacrifice gives us access to you Father, we thank you for what he has done. So let us cling to him and look to him and trust in him alone so that on that day when the end of all things come, we'll be ready. For the one today that's not, I pray today would be the day they call upon his name. In that name I pray, amen.